The museum I featured in this episode is in Lexington Park in Southern Maryland, and it's situated right next to the Patuxent Naval Air Base, hence the name of the museum, which is the Patuxent River Naval Air Museum. The two items that we wanted to discuss are their moon rock sample and the full-scale model of the X-47A mock-up. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy the show. So we can just, we can okay, just start. Okay, great. Um, all right, well, hello, everybody. Um, I'm here today with Dan Bramos. He's a volunteer at the Patuxent River Naval Air Museum, and we have some really fun history about him, about the museum, and then two particular items that we really like in the museum. So go ahead and take it off. I Thanks for having me, first of all. This is a great opportunity. Again, my name's Dan Bramos, a volunteer here at the Patuxent River Naval Air Museum. I've been with the museum about four years now, Came in uh, as a volunteer working with the communications team and then uh, also with a lot of the exhibit development, specifically in both the the unmanned systems and the spaceflight exhibit. As for the museum itself, the museum uh, was started in 1975 by a group of volunteers. So it opened in uh, 1978 um, in a small building on base. And then in 2001, when the Department of Transportation decided they were going to widen Route 235. That building had to go away, so had you know, our predecessors had to find a new new home for the, the museum. St. Mary's County was gracious enough to rent us the building that we're in right now. It's an older building. It's an old storage facility, but it, it, it looks great as a you know, museum. And then um, in the meantime, volunteers and, and community resources raised the money to build the new building beside us. You know, which at the time it was built was probably the most technologically advanced building in St. Mary's County. When it, was it built? So it was built in, uh, we opened the doors in 2016. How long did it take? Uh, it took 15 years to raise the money and get the design done and all of the contracting and get it built. That is some real community commitment. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah there were some, some, definitely some long-term volunteers that, that uh, really saw it through. Okay, well, um, so that's pretty cool for a museum. So you guys are completely volunteer, like, well, not completely volunteer, but you have mostly volunteers. You're not funded by... No, we're not funded by, uh, we don't. We get no uh, continual funding from any source, any uh, local, state, or federal sources. We, you know, we have received grants. Uh, we just received one from uh, the, I hope I get this right. Um, we can Mar- edit it later. Maryland, <laughs> uh, Maryland Historical trust um to use for part of our space flight exhibit um but most of what we uh uh, survive on is revenue from uh gift shop sales memberships um uh, gate sales you know admission sales um and private donations okay so right now during covid it's a little bit of a struggle it is (laughs) uh definitely we've had to scale back a lot of the budget. That's really too bad. And like you were saying earlier um, about what was it estimated 30% of museums are going to permanently close this year? From yeah. COVID? So the um, AAM, the American Alliance Museums, uh, has estimated that 30% of the museums in the country will probably close their doors for good this year because of COVID. That's really awful. So support your local museums. <laughs> 
All right, so um, for our two items that we have, um, the first one was kind of the one that really stuck out to me when I came to the museum. And I came here about two weeks ago, and I know nothing about planes or honestly, like the military in any form. Uh, my boyfriend is the one who really enjoys that kind of stuff. So we came mm -hmm. just to kind of, you know, he really enjoyed it. But I, I found that even as someone who doesn't know anything about planes or has no real serious interest in planes, it was still a really fun museum to visit. And uh, so, you know, they have an out, a whole outdoor area full of all these, they're planes and helicopters and things, but aren't they the ones that are like the test items? They are. Uh, they, the, the ones that are out on the flight line, um, are specifically, uh, were specifically flown here at Pax River as uh, test aircraft. Okay, so you, you, know, you can go see those, and then you come inside, and you have the two separate buildings. Mm -hmm. uh, and we went to, we got to tour the, the newer building that you guys have, and there's this really awesome little alcove that is all about space and, you know, space exploration, and it has some really great items. But the one that stood out to me, which probably stands out to a lot of people, is your, your moon rock. Yep. So I want to hear about the moon rock. <laughs> okay. Uh, and we, we just put, we were able to just put that on display a few weeks ago. I think it, it just went, it went on display like the week before you guys came. So we hit came. it just right. Um, it, it, and that has been um, years, literally a decade in the making, getting that out on display. Um, but I, I'm going to, I'm going to back up a little bit um, and explain that, you know, the reason why we have the space flight display here at the, the Patuxent River Naval Air Museum um, is because of uh, the way that, that our area is tied to space flight. And that's because here at Patuxent River Naval Air Station is the U.S. Naval Test Pilot School, where they train all the Navy, Marine Corps, and Army test pilots. Okay. And so through here, over 100 astronauts have trained to be test pilots. And so he, Patuxent River's biggest contribution to the spaceflight program is people, wow. in, in, in mostly in terms of astronauts. And so that's, that's what we're trying to tell is the story behind the people in the spaceflight program. So it's not just this cool extra thing. It's actually really tied to the history of this area and the museum itself. Yes. Um, you know, four of the original seven astronauts um, were trained as test pilots here at Pax River before they went on to become selected, you know, as the first seven. And, uh, and then, like I said, over a hundred, uh, astronauts have come through here at test pilot school. Um, including, um, you know, I think it was three in the last most recent test pilot or astronaut class. Um, but the moon rock itself is the, what NASA called the ambassador of exploration award. And they gave the Ambassador of Exploration Award to all of the pioneer astronauts, as they called it, the Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo astronauts, in recognition of, of their service to space exploration. So each one of those individuals got an award. Mm -hmm. And they all look the same. It's a, a lunar sample encased in loose sight you know, on the, uh, the black pedestal, just like you see here. There's, I don't know the exact count, but probably upwards of 20 around the country. But the stipulation from NASA was they, they will give each of the pioneer astronauts ambassador of exploration award on the condition that they select an institution for it to be housed in. And so Apollo 13 commander Jim Lovell was the one that selected the Patuxent River Naval Air Museum. So if you remember, you know, the Apollo 13 movie and 
NASA called it the, the successful failure because they never made it to the moon. But with, with all of those emergencies that happened because of the, uh, the oxygen tank exploding in the command service module, they were still able to get Apollo 13 back to Earth. And that was actually Jim Lovell's final flight with NASA. Uh, How many flights did he do? He did four. Two Gemini missions. I remember the first one, but the second one was uh, Gemini 12, which was the final uh, Gemini mission with Buzz Aldrin. Um, And then Apollo 8 with Bill Anders and Frank Borman. Okay. And then, of course, Apollo 13 with uh, Fred Hayes and um, Schweiger. I'm really testing yeah. your. You are. You're doing your really good. In-depth uh, right now. And but you're doing great. You're remembering more names than I even do of my own family. So. I should have brought notes. No, you're fine. Uh, um, so obviously they didn't land on the moon, so they didn't. They w- weren't able to bring back any lunar samples. So all of the lunar samples that are part of the Ambassador of Exploration Awards um, were brought back by Apollo 16, um, which were collected by John Young and. Charlie Duke. And so did they actually collect them? Did they physically collect them themselves? And that's like when their little hand tools came in? Or yes. did they send a machine in? That's actually a, a good question. Um, all of the, the lunar samples that they brought back on Apollo 16 were collected by hand. And when we say by hand, it was like they used little, little scoopers. It, real similar, like if you see like the, the dog pooper scoopers. Yeah. Um, or the, the dust pans that you use so you don't have to bend over because the, the extravehicular activity suits, the space suits, are very you know cumbersome and laborious, and they can't really bend over. So even bending over, it's like that that one video that kind of moved around a while, where you see them trying to learn how to just walk, and it's just this, absolutely this mess of falling over. Yep, and 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 then of course they they weren't absolutely sure how to do it until they got to the moon There's in in, no in, in one six gravity. Um, in fact, there's a the the final Apollo flight was um, or moon moon landing was Apollo 17, and there's some great footage out there of uh, Jack Schmidt, who was the only scientist to go to the moon, of him falling over, trying to like pick up moon rocks and Just losing the balance and falling over. And of course, the audio is great because he's you know being a, uh, a career ge- geologist with a PhD, he was the only scientist non-test pilot to go to the moon. Um, and so he was up there, you know, in all his glory and, and very excited. So hearing all about that. But going back to, to Jim Lovell, he, you know, he was here as a test pilot at, at Pax River, um, enjoyed his time both at test pilot school and then um, doing follow on testing in lots of different aircraft. But, you know, reading his book, which was originally called Lost Moon, got renamed Apollo 13 after the movie. Oh. Um but reading his book, obviously his favorite was his favorite aircraft out here was the F four, and he actually shared a lot of time in the F four with uh, his fellow TPS classmate Pete Conrad, who's another astronaut, and uh, John Young. They kept you know they were competing with each other within uh, to get certain tests done, um, and then of course they all you know at various times they got selected to the astronaut corps both. In fact, they were all selected in uh, Group 2 okay. um, right after the original seven. So Group 2 was known as the new nine because it was, you know, nine new guys. And then throughout there, they they went and did the, the Gemini, Gemini and Apollo missions, you know, culminating for Jim Lovell with Apollo 13. And then he came back and 
and retired, but, you know, always had a fondness for, you know, being here at Pax River, living here in Lexington Park. And, uh, and so he, again, he selected the Patuxent River Naval Air Museum as his institution that he wanted his lunar sample to, to be showcased in. Uh, so there, there's something about it being called a lunar sample and not a moon rock. Yes. Uh, so when we were uh, doing some research on putting it out on display, and it, it was it, uh, we were getting through all the security and, and you know how do how do we all the different logistics and trying to put it out, uh, I reached out to Captain Lovell and said, "Hey, we're we're trying to do this. We want to do it right. Uh, I." You know, I'm really excited to be able to put your moon rock out on display. And I got an email back from from Captain Lovell that said, well, first of all, it's a lunar sample, <laughs> not a moon rock. Specifically. Yes. Uh, and so we, in in all of our notes and our discussions here at the museum, we try and, and refer to it as the lunar sample because that's what what uh, Jim wanted us to, to call it, it oh. you know, because it, that's the, the real name of it. And the respectful thing to do. Yes. <laughs> so you guys got the lunar the lunar sample, and so now it's on display, and you had to do quite a bit of finagling to make sure that you met the specifications to be able to house that sample here, right? Right. There, There's a lot of different security measures that, that are required to be in place by NASA in order for us to, to display it. It, it, it was... Uh, given to us on permanent loan in 2009 and we haven't been able to display it until this year because of some of those specific security measures and when i you know when i talked about the new building being built a lot of those security measures were built in designed and built into the new building when we when our predecessors built that in mind you know keeping in mind that that the what lunar sample was going to go on display so mm-hmm. they had that in mind the whole time they were designing that building there's uh, security measures that you can see, security measures that you can't see. I'm not going to go into detail about them, obviously. Yeah. But um, it's not going anywhere. Good. <laughs> Good. So uh, with the, the, the lunar sample that you guys have, um, I mean, it's what, it's about a little bit bigger than a quarter in size? It is. Uh, I would say it's probably, you know, like your pinky knuckle, you know. Okay. And what, what is it made of? Because I'm just thinking stardust, fantastical, you know, like. So I did bring some notes on that because um, I didn't want to get that wrong. It is, so our, our lunar sample weighs 1.145 grams. Okay. And it's part of a larger rock that was picked up by Charlie Duke. Oh, and then they just split uh, it to give to the different astronauts. Yep. And so the original um, rock was about 1.2 kilograms, so a little over two pounds. Okay. And then they split it up. Um, and it, uh, it is, and I'm going to cheat again and look at my notes. That's all right. I tested um, him earlier on some really hard names, <laughs> so I feel like it's fine if you... <laughs> um, it is um, made of anorthosite. What, okay. Which, again, I, from what I understand, is mostly iron. Okay. So it's not some kind of fantastical item that we don't have here on Earth. No, all of, all of the, the um, elements that are in that moon rock exist here on earth okay so i mean it's a little bit of a letdown that it's not just some celestial power but that's okay well i mean <laughs> if you go back to um you know what what carl sagan says we're all made of moon or uh, stardust Which, is you know everything out in the atmosphere is the same stuff that you and i are made of 
And so you and I have the same stuff inside of us that that lunar sample does, that, that say, Jupiter does, just in different concentrations. Okay, well, that makes me feel a little bit better. <laughs> so, all right, so we have this particular sample, but the samples that have come from the moon aren't only the samples that were given to those science, those astronauts, right? Right. So it, a bunch of different countries got some? Yeah, so every country in the world got a... Uh, a lunar sample from NASA because, uh, you know, the the placard on the landing gear of the Apollo 11 lunar module says we came in peace for all mankind, um, not the United States. So in, in the spirit of for all mankind, uh, NASA and the United States government gave a lunar sample to every country in the world, as well as every state in the country. It's quite a few samples. Yes. Um, <laughs> and it's interesting to try and find out. There's lists out there on Wikipedia. And, and um, if you go to collectspace.com, there's a great list there. Um, Robert Perlman runs a runs a great history site there. And um, you can see where they are. Some of them say unknown. Okay. Um, because they've been lost to history. They've been misplaced. They've been stolen black market for yes. moon rock. <laughs> um, there, there has been a black market for moon rocks. In fact, there was a, uh, was about 15 years ago, I think. Uh, and this is, and I'm going from memory here again. There was a intern at NASA in Houston that decided he figured out a get, get rich quick scheme, stole a, uh, a safe out of one of the educators office that had moon rocks in it, put it on a message board online for, you know, rare, gemstone and rock collectors one of those guys uh who responded also responded to the fbi and so that moon rock was never sold it was in fact it was never even really lost you know they tracked it the whole time recovered it and he's now in prison there's other there's other and then some states like haven't really decided to to do it the maryland moon rock is still in a safe in annapolis well, and like you were saying, I mean, there's all these different parameters you have to meet in order to display it. And unfortunately, that isn't the priority of a lot of places. Correct. So, well, and, and with you guys, I mean, it took a little while because you had to do all of that on your own without any kind of government funding to right. put that out. Yeah. So. And every and that, along with everything we do, is, you know, is self-funded or by, you know, grants or whatever we can mm-hmm. It's small, small increments, mm-hmm. and after time, we can get a display going. And um, because you know what you see here at the the, and we we're calling this the naval aviation and space display. It we're still expanding that. We're we're, we're happy to get the lunar sample out, but that's not the only thing we have on the display. And then um, later next month, the uh, the conservators coming to uh, come in here to pick up a mural that we saved from base. It's a 12, uh, 12 foot by 20 foot mural, uh, that had, that was in the officer's club for years, um, uh, for about 30 years. And, uh, and that depicts, and that's why we're calling it the Naval Aviation in, Dis- in Space Display. That depicts everything, uh, examples of flight, everything from Mercury to the space shuttle era. Oh, that's, and that's so gonna that's going to be, be restored. Um, and that, that's the grant that we received was for the restoration of that. We still need to raise the money in order to, once we get it restored, still need to raise the money to get it 
uh, mounted and up on the display. And of course, you know, like I said, it's, it's 12 foot by 20 foot. So that's going to, it's going to be the centerpiece above that entire spaceflight exhibit that you were looking at. Well, and I, what I also really appreciated about your little display area, I mean, I mean, you guys have patches and you have a lot of really great information on the boards, but I thought it was really cute. You also have um, a little space for kids to write a little letter to the astronauts at NASA. Yep. And I mean, I'm assuming you guys just mail those in after you get some. Yeah. So we, um, we haven't completed the, the, uh, the talk yet, but what we're going to be doing is scanning those. Uh, keeping the originals in our archives so they stay here, but scanning them and sending them to to public public affairs at NASA so they can be distributed. And I'm assuming if you just, you know, for um, sake of curiosity, uh, I could just write in really poor handwriting and <laughs> pretend like I'm a child and still write to NASA. No one would know because you anonymously put them yeah, in absolutely. the envelope box. So I'm just saying that. And um, I will tell you, the, the, the idea I had behind that was when I was eight years old, I watched the first shuttle launch on TV. And um, I, it was spring break. I remember it was spring break. I was laying on the, the floor of my grandparents' house wa- watching the launch. And and I wrote a letter and, or I drew a picture of the space shuttle. And my parents encouraged me to write a letter. So I wrote a letter to the astronauts and mailed it into NASA. And I don't know how long, but later on in the year, I got back a letter and a picture from John Young and Bob Crippen, the guys that flew the first shuttle mission, you know, thanking me for my pic. I'm sure it was a form letter, but it, you know, to, to eight-year-old Dan, it was the coolest thing that ever happened. And your future was set in place. Yeah. <laughs> and so I've been following, you know, and doing research on spaceflight since then. And you guys also have a screen that shows the next time that the space station can be seen yep. from this location. Yeah, and um, and any anybody can get a hold of that. That's uh, that's called the the ISS above, and you can literally go to issabove.com or look on their Facebook page. It, it's um, done by a friend of mine out in California, and uh, it what it, it's it's live updates, to, and you you go into it's based on a Raspberry Pi, and so you can go in and change the the zip code, and so it's based on where you live, and it will show you the next time that the space station's flying over, uh, both the, the next time it's flying over and the next visible pass. So it'll tell you, you know, you go outside, you know, look west at you know twelve fifteen degrees above the horizon, and you'll see it fly over. Oh, that's cool. We saw the exact same um, setup, the same one that was being shown. Um, at the, the Udvarhazi. Okay. I can never remember Great. that name. The Udvarhazi. I went to that for the first time. They have the same thing. All right. So we're going to completely switch gears. I mean, since we are a Naval Air Museum is what we're talking about. Yes. Um, you have another item here that's much, much larger uh, that also has a really cool history behind it. Okay. Yeah. The um, I'll kind of transition it here. You know, Naval Aviation and Space is just one of the, the displays that we have. We have a, a few others, including the flight line, which is, you know, 25 different full-size aircraft outside. Inside, we've got, you know, coming through uh, the older building, we have an ejection seat gallery, an engine gallery, and uh, finally, as you turn the corner, are our simulators, which are currently closed because of COVID, yeah. but also our unmanned systems gallery. So all of our, you know, either remotely piloted or autonomous vehicles. And within that exhibit is, uh, are a couple of my favorites, but my absolute favorite being the, the X-47A Pegasus unmanned system. 
All right, so for those of us who know nothing about naming or really flight in general, so the X-47A mock-up unmanned system. So what the X, okay. what, what, is, what does that mean? So the aircraft designators are broken up into basically three areas. Okay. That, so the first letter is what the airplane does. Um, in this case, the X means experimental. Okay. Uh, so like with the F-14... The F being a fighter, or the A six, the A being attack. I mean, that makes so much sense. <laughs> um, and and you get into some other weirdness um, where you know now nowadays the we ran out of designators, so Q means unmanned. But for the most part, you'd be able to figure it out. So then the second set is the numbers, and that's the iteration of aircraft, almost in order. Okay. Um, so. You know, A six is you know is the six attack aircraft within that family. Okay. So, um, so forty seven is because it started out as an X plane. It was the forty seventh X plane. Okay. When it got named, and then of course the 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 letter afterwards is what variation of that aircraft it is. So it, A is the first model of the X forty seven. B would be the next the next model of the X forty seven. So it's basically so like the same base, just with slight modifications. Yeah. So think purposes. of it as um, you, you know, like when you're when you're buying a car, you know, you, you can you, you're buying like the twenty eighteen, but it could be like the model LT, right? Or or the the late model twenty eighteen is a different production line than the early model twenty eighteen. Okay. Um, and so it's it's a variation on that, you know. 2018's car is different than 2019's car, and that's what we're talking about here. Right. So un- it's part of the unmanned system. It, it has is. unmanned system. So that I mean, obviously, that means there's not a person in there flying it around. Right. There's no cockpit in there, and so the difference between uh, what we call RPV or remotely piloted vehicle and autonomous vehicles is the remotely piloted vehicle. Uh, there's a direct input to the output of the vehicle. So there's somebody sitting there operating a control stick go here go here you know and it's like instantaneous throttle up throttle down move right move left Um, whereas an autonomous vehicle there's what's called a vehicle operator and he's more of a he more has a a larger view uses a, a computer and mouse to say go to this point in the air using gps so you know an xyz axis way out there somewhere out in the sky and then the vehicle itself has the capability to figure out how to move its own wings, you know, throttle up, throttle down, turn left, turn right to get to that point in the sky where the pilot told it to be. And so this one that you have here, um, it's the one that can, you just use the mouse and you click and it kind of goes where you tell it to. Yeah. So the X-47A was the Northrop Grumman's input into the unmanned combat air system demonstration project. And so the, the Navy and the Air Force got together and said, we, we want to figure this whole unmanned airplane autonomous weapon system out. Boeing, Northrop Grumman both submitted models or actual flying concepts. The X-47A, which is a model, full-size model we have here, uh, the X-45A can be seen at Air and Space, you know, Smithsonian, downtown on the mall. And then the other one is at Museum of the Air Force in Dayton, Ohio. But Northrop Grumman won the contract. 
uh, they then produced a, two full-size uh, autonomous vehicles to demonstrate taking off and landing on an aircraft carrier by itself with no human input uh, and refueling in the air. So the main purpose of this vehicle was to be on an aircraft carrier, get fueled up, and then fly and refuel up another plane and then come back down. So, Is that what it was? So you're close. Okay. It would it, land on a carrier, take off from a carrier, and be fueled from another airplane. Okay. Um, the follow-on to this one which the Navy is implementing right now and is being tested out in in St. Louis is um, the MQ-25, which is the refueler. That's the one that will give fuel. So then was this one, what was the main purpose of this vehicle then? So so the main purpose of the X-47 was to demonstrate the technology to autonomously take off from an aircraft carrier. So as soon as the launch button is hit, it's flying itself. And then, and the biggest part is, autonomously land on an aircraft carrier. So it, you know, it knows where it's at in the sky at all times. It knows where the carrier is. It's talking to the carrier and then lands itself without any pilot input. And so that was basically created in a model to show that it could be done on other types of flight, on other types of airplanes. Yeah. And, and we, we successfully landed on the carrier, um, in, uh, uh, 2014, and in fact, um, the, the team that produced and flew the X-47B won the Collier Trophy for 2013, which is, you know, the Collier Trophy is like, uh, they call it the, the most significant achievement in aerospace or astrospace for the year. So it's a pretty prestigious It's like the, the Collier, or it's like the, the Stanley Cup or the Lombardi Trophy for, for airplane people. Okay. Um, you know, the, so it's like, a big deal. <laughs> it is a big deal. I mean, the, the, the Apollo 11 astronauts won it. You know, Chuck Yeager won it. The Wright brothers won it, okay. uh, and and then here at Pax River, there's been there's actually been quite a few teams here based here out of Pax River that won it. But you know, I like to brag because I was part of the X forty seven team, and and we won the Collier Trophy in twenty thirteen. That was pretty awesome. Congratulations. <laughs> okay, so you you took me back there, and I got to kind of see the actual air the model aircraft, mm-hmm. um, and it one hundred percent looks like a spaceship. It does. It, it looks a lot like a spaceship. There's no window in front, so it doesn't. I mean, it doesn't look like a traditional aircraft. Right. No cockpit. No the cockpit. two things you see you, you see immediately when you walk up to either the X-47A or the B model is no cockpit mm-hmm. and no tail. Yeah, and it's it like it's very very smooth, uniform surfaces everywhere on it. It's that nice gray. I mean, it, it yes. Yeah. So, so one of the uh, one of the other things that they wanted to do with this program was design what they called a, a low observable relevant aircraft. So when we talk about low observable, that's the technical term for stealth. Okay. You know, when they talk, when, you know, like the B-2 stealth bomber, mm-hmm. if you take a look at that and take a look at the X-47, they look pretty similar. Okay. They were designed by the same people. Stealthy. Yeah. Um, and, and that, and we, when we say stealth, it, you know, there's a few different versions. What we're talking about with that is a radar return. So, so it's n- like not detectable by radar. Right. Yeah, so instead of seeing the return of a, you know, a full-size aircraft like you might if you were looking at, say, you know, a 727 on radar, uh, what you'll see uh, with, you know, a stealth aircraft is literally half a penny okay. or less. Okay. 
that the one that you have here, it's the Model A. And then there was also the Model B, which is a lot bigger than this particular size. It is about twice the size. And you, at one point, they, they were traveling here, but now we just have the Model A here. Right. The, the B was here um, for about three years while we did all the flight tests. Because we, we, we started the flight test out at Edwards Air Force Base because they were built in Palmdale. And then put them on trailers, er, trucks, trucked them all the way across the country here to Pax River and mainly because we have the capabilities here at Pax River um, we have arresting gear and catapults here on the field that we could do the initial tests with and then send them out to the ship you know in the right in the Atlantic so the, the aircraft carrier can pull out of Norfolk and be right you know off the coast of Virginia yeah. and we we could we flew them out of here to do the tests out of uh, out in the Atlantic okay and then uh, when then when the tests were done, uh, Northrop Grumman, who owned the aircraft, because the, the Navy paid to have them built, but Northrop Grumman owned them, they thought they were going to be able to use them for different tests for their own company. So they took them, packed them back up, and took them all the way back out to Palmdale, California. They took both of them? They or? took both of them. Oh, okay. And then, thankfully, you guys were able to get the Model A here. Well, so the mo- I, took, I meant they, they took both B models out there. Oh, so the, I see. So the two B models that were built. We have, what we have the A model that we have here is is literally a model. It, it's a full size plywood and plastic mock up of the A. Okay. Um, but we're happy to have it here because it's full size and it represents the story of the X forty seven. Well, I mean, and, I mean, if you see it, it's it, it's the exact same thing. Just right. it, you know, it didn't wasn't made of metal. <laughs> so I know that you were telling me earlier the funny story about trying to get those to here. Right, when we trucked them across the country. Yes. So that was a, um, it was a joint effort between the government and Northrop Grumman. Again, they were owned by Northrop Grumman, so all that was, was paid for by them. But we had to figure out how to, how to get them across the country, and so finally decided the, the easiest way was just going to be to put them on a truck and truck them across the country. And uh, so in doing that, we had to pull the wings off and put them on a different truck, but you know, even in that, the the fuselage of the airplane itself was 22 feet wide, so it took up an entire highway, and had to issue permits. You know, each state issued its own permits for us to get it all the way across the country, and uh, you know, nothing ever goes smoothly with 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 a government operation, right? Especially so, not when you're going through multiple states, <laughs> right? And and you, we were able to travel across the country three four hours a day. Uh, mostly at night, so we weren't clobbering up traffic because the convoy was usually 12 to 13 vehicles between state police cars and safety vehicles. And then, of course, the, you know, the big trailer itself with the airplane on it. And then, you know, the North of Grumman representatives that had to travel with it. That is a much more massive project than I originally thought. Uh, well, and not to mention, you know, in order to get it across the country, they had to they had to drive the entire route ahead of time. And figure out what signs had to be mo- removed, what trees had to get cut down. Wow! All the all the way, you know, from Edwards Air Force Base in California, Mojave Desert, across the country, here to Petio, you know, around the Beltway in D.C., down Route Five, here onto base. Mm-hmm. And so we we literally we were laser measuring, you know, everything to make sure that these would fit. That's, yeah, that's, that's so much, so much work. And and so if you if you go online and you Google Beltway UFO, 
Ah, because uh, it does. It looks like a it, UFO. It, especially <laughs> because we, we, you know, in order to keep uh, keep it safe and keep the elements off of it, we packaged it up like, you know, like winterize in a boat, you know, with the shrink wrap and, mm-hmm. and everything like that. And uh, so... Like you would cover up a government secret. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm sure, yes, there were conspiracy theories out there for that because, yes, it it looks like a UFO when it's all wrapped up. And there's no, or what people would think a UFO would look like because we don't know what a UFO looks like, right? So in coming across the Beltway, we had to go, the truck had to go over an overpass instead of under at one point. And it just so happens that, you know, cell phones and cameras and that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. and, And so we popped up on the news as the Beltway UFO. I, I mean, it kind of, you know, some nice press for you. True. <laughs> We've got the Beltway UFO here. But uh, so also on your travels, you became part of a Christmas parade? Oh, yep, yep. Um, they, of course, they one of the times, you know, like I said, states issued their own permits and it never goes right. So at one point they uh, they double issued a, I don't remember what town it was, to be honest with you, uh, but they, they double issued a permit to a town parade. And to our transportation team. And so they didn't really have a choice, but other than to join in the parade and just keep going through town. And <laughs> once they got to the other side of town, they just keep going, kept going. That's awesome. <laughs> what, so it wasn't a Christmas parade. It was just a regular I, th- I think it, was, it had to have been a Christmas parade given the time of year. Okay. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Sweet. Well, I don't know if you, do you have any, any other fun little tidbits you want to share with us about the item? Because... Really, the most the funnest part I think for me was um, the UFO story and the traveling to get it here. It, it, and that, that uh, to me that that's a great piece of, of the X forty seven story and lore is that kind of airplane that story. Uh, uh, there's a little bit of it that appeals to everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, the the neat part about it flying itself, you know, whether it be a you know a kid wanting a, a new drone that flies itself because we have those now, you know. All the way to the technical of the engineering side of the house where these guys understand, you know, the differential GPS between the airplane and the carrier and the airplane knowing how to land itself. Mm-hmm. I, I think that that's one of the cool things about this museum is even though, I mean, it seems from the outside, if you're looking at it from an untrained eye, you're kind of just thinking it's just a bunch of planes. But there's actually a lot that you can enjoy here. And I also think that the story behind this one just kind of goes to show how difficult it can be to actually acquire items and bring them to a museum. And I think it's sometimes easy to just look at them and take them at face value. But it's so important to see the story behind and the work that went behind these items to bring them to the public to view as, you know, free learning. That's, that's a great point, too, is, is um, you know, you walk around, you don't. We try and tell the story behind the artifact, but, you know, it's also fun to tell the story behind getting the artifact. Which can, yeah, is also sometimes equally as interesting. Right. You know, so. um, you know when you ask me, you know, go go pick your, fa- your favorite thing in the museum. It took me two days of walking around <laughs> here. And, and not just these two buildings, but I even went into our collections management facility, our archives, and uh, I was going through everything because there's all kinds of cool stuff. I mean, like one of the like, a handful of other things that I was thinking about was the ripcord from a parachute for the only guy to bail out of what was called the inflatable plane. Goodyear made an inflatable airplane hmm. that they tested here at Pax River. 
Doesn't sound like it went well. It did. Obviously, you don't see any inflatable airplanes no. around, so it didn't go great. And um, one of the guys had to bail out, and he he donated the actual handle from his ripcord to the museum here. Oh. It's sitting in the archives right now. Another thing is you know, that that tells a story about about tests and evaluation here at Paxter because it's what what they do. There's a a panel. Looks, if you look at it, it, ju- it looks like a piece of plywood, about a one-foot-by-two-foot section of plywood. But what it really is is a ballistics protection panel from a, the floorboards of a V-22. In order to keep the Marines safe in, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, um, we developed a floorboard system made out of a, a, a bulletproof material that could be installed in the bottom of these aircraft to keep these guys from getting shot at from the ground. And we have one of the panels in our archives that was a test panel that they shot at to oh, make wow. sure it would work. So it's got the, the bullet impacts in, in that panel. So there's all kinds of different things that, that we have here that, that tell great stories, yeah. whether they're in the archives or out on the floor right now. It, it, it's fun to tell not just the technical but the personal aspect of the mm-hmm. stories. Well, and it really brings these items to life and makes them so memorable just for the different stories that you can have that gives it a wide audience. I mean, every, like we were saying, everyone can enjoy a really cool story. Right. So, well, thank you so much. Yeah, this absolutely. This has been really wonderful. And I really, really appreciate you taking the time and going through the two days of that rough pick in your favorite item. <laughs> And yeah, no, I really appreciate you. And I appreciate the museum and the history that you guys have here and how amazing it is that you guys are funded the way that you are. That's really incredible. Uh, So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been great. It's been wonderful. (laughs) 